these ranchers had actually put the lines up themselves. They had bought the equipment and the wire to put the lines up themselves. So what's really interesting, I think, is the fact that we're building this service out here and working with these property owners, these ranchers. I think that it's an interesting deal to be able to show that there's this ability for people in these areas to figure out their own solutions. Welcome to episode 384 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. You've likely heard the term space cowboy and probably urban cowboy, but this week Christopher talks with Matt Larson, a wireless cowboy. Matt is owner and CEO of Vistabeam. During this interview, you'll learn that the nickname doesn't come from the garb he wears, but from wrangling internet access for people in some of the most rural areas in the American West. Vistabeam was awarded subsidies in the Connect America Funding Part 2 auction and is working to extend their fixed wireless service to more rural communities. Matt, who grew up on a ranch, knows what it's like to struggle without high-quality connectivity, and he's made it his life's mission to change that for others living in extremely low population density areas. Matt and Chris talk about the CAF2 auction, the bidding process, and the challenges that Vistabeam has faced as a small company participating in the process. They talk about the new Lifeline product that will provide much more affordable and reliable connectivity than the satellite internet access many locals depend on in the very rural areas. Matt discusses the people they typically serve and why he's not worried that the SpaceX project will replace his company's services anytime soon. Now here's Christopher talking with Matt Larson from Vistabeam. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I'm talking to uh, my, one of my favorite guests over past episodes, Matt Larson, the uh, owner and CEO of Vistabeam. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Hey, Chris. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you because I think this subject of making sure that people in rural areas are able to afford internet access is really important and has been one that has been neglected while we're just trying to figure out some way of making sure there's some level of access available. And so uh, I'm really excited to to dive into that with you. Uh, But for people who are newer to the show, for the thousands of people who are listening to this episode for the first time, (laughs) tell us what Vistabeam is. So Vistabeam is a fixed wireless internet provider. Uh, We've been in business since 2004, and we serve a huge area in Western Nebraska, Eastern Wyoming, and Northern Colorado. We cover about 40,000 square miles. Uh, Almost all of our area that we cover is rural, uh, very low population density. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, a big part of our mission has been getting broadband out to a lot of people that don't have a lot of their choices. Now, you're someone who takes this, <laughs> this is going to come totally out of the blue, but I just remembered, I've been wanting to ask you this question for like six weeks. I came across um, a Texas town that called itself the cowboy capital of the world. And I wanted to get your reaction to that, knowing that your love of the cowboy culture. <laughs> so I, I grew up on a feedlot and we had a big ranch in Wyoming. So I spent a lot of time uh, out there. And, uh, let me tell you, real cowboy culture is, uh, a lot different than what you see on, on TV it's, and in the movies. It's, uh, there's a lot of hard work out there and there's a reason I'm doing stuff related to computers as opposed to, uh, you know, <laughs> riding a horse around. Plus I don't, I don't look very good in a cowboy hat and, uh, you know, wasn't very good at riding a horse. So, 
Uh, I was a lot better with computers. The one thing I do love about what I get to do is we get to spend a lot of time. We get to spend a lot of time out in uh, uh, some beautiful natural environments out here. And that's part of why I, you know, decided to, I kind of called myself a little bit of a wireless cowboy because I still get to go out to the same pastures that I used to go out to with my dad uh, a lot of times, but we've got a tower out there instead of cattle. That works for me. Yeah. Well, that's great. One of the things that we were frustrated about is that the the telephone companies were getting access to subsidies that uh, you didn't have access to. Uh, you built your network almost entirely without any subsidies, and you can correct me if there was zero involved. Um, but they but they were doing a worse job, providing worse service than you, and had access to all this money. And now the the Connect America Fund uh, to the auctions that concluded last year, um, you qualified and won a substantial amount. So so just tell us about that. So participating in the Connect America Fund was a really big decision on our part. Uh, most of the uh, network that we have was built on private investment. Uh, we did have some success with some local uh, initiatives, some local economic development funds in Nebraska that uh, they we were able to put some stuff together based on job creation that helped us with some of our initial build out. Uh, a few of the communities had their own economic development funds that we were able to borrow money from and uh, use that to build service out to their areas. Uh, eventually, we were able to get in on a couple of state programs in uh, Colorado and Nebraska that helped pay for uh, some network upgrades, some network expansion. But Connect America Fund was on a completely different level. It really meant that we were going to have to completely change the way that we ran our company. Uh, it just required us to evolve. There are a lot of different things when you're working with uh, big government entities that had to do with regulatory responsibility. We had to change our accounting. So we had audited financials. We had to adopt uh, gap accounting, which, you know, these are things that a lot of other, you know, bigger carrier type companies are doing that from the start. But as a small company, you know, we, we ran it like a small company for a long time. And this was really something that forced us to change. But it took a three-year commitment, and then we had to kind of look at our area uh, based on the parameters and say, okay, what can we do that's actually going to be doable for us? One of the things that we tried to do when we put our plan together was to make sure we didn't outkick our coverage, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I think that we chose areas that we knew we'd be able to get into in pretty short order and uh, bandwidth goals that we could meet. And I, I feel really good about where we ended up with the program. Uh, I think we're going to get a little over 5 million over 10 years. It really helped focus a lot of our efforts. You know, so the areas that we were going to get the investment in, they're, they're going to get better service than they would have gotten otherwise because they were, oh, these are some pretty remote areas. One of our areas has a little bit of population in it, but the rest of them are like really extreme rural. You know, one of them where we got an award was uh, Niobrara County, Wyoming. And Niobrara County is the least populated county in the least populated state. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, maybe one one location per square mile uh, when everything's averaged out, which means that there's places where it might be 10 square miles before we even have a location in some of these places. But we, uh, we have some unique things that we've developed to be able to deliver broadband into really rural areas like that requires a lot of close communication with the people that live there, 
people in the communities, it's got to be kind of a cooperative effort because uh, we need to work with the, the locals to be able to put in infrastructure that's going to be able to get to them. There's a story I want to, I really think is interesting about this. So as I was doing some research into Niobrara County in particular, uh, there's a big chunk of the northern part of the county has a terrible problem with their telephone lines. I took a phone call one day, one of our installers was out there and he had to use the landline and it sounded like there was a dial-up modem on the line at the same time because the lines were so bad. <laughs> I, as I was doing some research, I found out that uh, these ranchers had actually put the lines up themselves. They had bought the equipment and the wire to put the lines up themselves. And then at some point, U.S. West actually took over ownership of the lines and was supposed to maintain them and didn't. So what's really interesting, I think, is the fact that we're building the service out here and working with these property owners, these ranchers, you know, history's repeating itself a little bit. They actually did a lot of the work to try and get themselves serviced back in the day and then had to turn it over to another company that then didn't take care of it. So we're working with them to get service again. And I think that's kind of an interesting, interesting deal to be able to do that, to kind of show that there's this, this ability for people in these areas to figure out their own solutions. Yes, well, you're <laughs> you're preaching to the choir on there. And if you could, if the listeners could see my face uh, when you're describing that U.S. West did not maintain the lines, the expression was not surprise. <laughs> yeah. um, so, when you bid in one of the auctions, what levels did you bid at? For what speeds? Uh, was it one consistent one or a couple of different ones in different areas? Uh, we bid twenty-five down, three up uh, in all of our areas. I, I don't think it would have been a stretch to do 100 by 20 in some of the more dense areas. But based on the existing equipment that we've got right now, we felt like 25.3 was gonna be uh, an achievable and sustainable level and appropriate depending on, when, when we look at what our average customer utilization is, it seems like that's gonna be a sufficient level, especially as a minimum. When we made our bid, which you had no, at this point, this was like a year and a half ago. Right. It looked like 100 by 20 was going to be a little bit of a stretch. Now, since then, new equipment has come onto the come onto the market that I think is probably going to be capable of doing 100 by 20 in fixed wireless scenarios pretty easily. But at the time, you know, we were we didn't think that we could bid that out. And the other part of that is it kind of turns into a little bit of a, a backhaul issue. If, you know, if you've got to build, you know, 100 miles worth of microwave backhaul to get to somebody before you even get to fiber, there's going to be some limits in, in how many customers you can put on that. So we had to kind of factor that in as, as we, we put our bid together. What kind of coverage do you have to offer in these areas as part of receiving these funds? Uh, do you have to hit every home or how does that work? Uh, we're, we have to hit 100% of the locations. And so the way that the system is laid out, uh, there's like a census block group. And then within the census block, you know, there will be some locations in there. I actually had to, I, I spent about a week on Google Earth putting uh, markers on every house and every location that could be serviced in there. Mm -hmm. So we had a pretty good idea of exactly uh, how we had to get to them. So there is a little bit of a, I think there's like a 5% factor in there, uh, but we, we feel pretty confident we're going to be able to get to uh, probably 98% without a whole lot of problem. Uh, that last 2%, you know, we, we'll, we'll be able to figure out how to get to them one way or the other, but it's gonna be a little bit of a challenge. Honestly, the first 80% is gonna be uh, 
fairly straightforward. The last 20% is going to provide 80% of the, the actual challenge on, on this project. Yeah. I'm not too surprised. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the kind of people that are out there. I'm, I'm going to assume that they're all millionaires, um, probably, you know, from California, they, they bought up all kinds of land and they're young millionaire type folks. Is that the demographic we're talking about? Wow. I, I don't know where you get that information from. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say, I mean, every once in a while there are, uh, there are some huge landowners. Um, I know one of our customers has the largest log home in the world. Okay. <laughs> but it's built out in a very rural area. Uh, we, we had a guy that uh, moved into Wyoming from Texas and uh, asked if he could get internet at his house. And we kind of said, you know, it's, it's going to be really expensive. You know, we're going to have to put in a tower and it's probably going to be, you know, $15,000 up front to even get a connection to your house. This was three years ago when he had called us and uh, he's he just had his South Texas accent. His buddy, I I just paid a plumber $12,000. I need internet worse than I need running water. So you just make it happen, you know. <laughs> but those guys are really the exception. For the most part, we have a lot of uh, ranchers and people have been, been there for a few generations. They uh, have kind of a fixed income where they might have land that's worth a lot of money but they have to pay a fair amount in upkeep and taxes. They don't have a lot of disposable income to put towards this. So I know when we, when we started talking to some of the people in these areas and kind of talking at, at we had, we've had a, just a few meetings with people and it seemed like one of the things that was very interesting to them was the fact that we were going to be bringing a low cost broadband option to them that uh, you know, they'd be able to afford we, we've, we've actually had a couple of situations where, you know, the guy that I mentioned from Texas, he, he spent the money to put that tower up, but uh, six of his neighbors were able to get service because of that. So we've seen multiple situations where the, uh, the one the one guy that or the one uh, landowner that's uh, a little bit better off spends the money to try and get service and it kind of benefits the neighbors. And that's that's been a nice thing to see, you know, kind of this neighborly. Uh, attitude out there. And what we're hoping is that, you know, with the cap deal, we're going to be able to kind of take that. But, you know, instead of, you know, the rich guy from Texas, that, you know, Uncle Sam will help put the tower up and, uh, you know, help help get the neighbors online. But we're not talking about a bunch of rich people. For the most part, mm -hmm. the majority of our, our customers out here, people that have lived here, their families have been here, you know, since uh, homesteading days. And they are, uh, not rolling in the dough like you might think. Well, yeah, I, I would hope that nobody has that misconception. I just thought it would be a fun way to introduce the question. <laughs> the um, one of the, like I said at the beginning of the interview, I you know I think this is crucial because there's been so much of a focus on um, rural availability of access, and then affordability has mainly been a question in urban areas. And so uh, you know you are offering now a lifeline product, and and that is a requirement um, as part of Connect America Fund. But it also sounded like something it was it was something you wanted to do anyway, and this kind of forced you to to go ahead and and wrap it up. So um, tell us about the lifeline program that you're working on. The plan is to offer a 25-3 Lifeline product for $29.95 a month. Our regular plan is $39.95. Uh, I think that's going to be a big benefit. A lot of the people that we've talked to have been paying uh, a lot more than that for satellite, if they can even get it. And the satellite has really been 
suboptimal for what they've been trying to do, uh, you know, because it's it's got some pretty substantial limitations. Every time we put in uh, new service in places where typically it's been satellite, we get almost 100% everybody switches over. Right, uh, because it just works that much better. It, what I find amazing is that there's, I mean, there's a substantial number of people in this country who want internet in rural areas, um, have access to satellite, and would prefer nothing to paying for satellite. So that gives you a sense of just how bad satellite can be. Yeah, emergency use only, kind of. But I mean, we've also got uh, people that were uh, uh, using hotspots in situations. If you could get a hotspot, that would work. Uh, I know that we had uh, uh, one ranch that had, uh, oh, I think they had like eight homes on this fairly rural ranch, and they were running up a three to $4,000 a month bill with Verizon on hotspots. Yeah. Now, they could access the hotspots, but that's a, kind of, that's a kind of insanity that you see sometimes in uh, uh, rural areas when you've got, when you don't have the, the regular infrastructure there. So the Lifeline program that you're providing, um, are there qualifications for that or how does that work exactly? Yeah, so it's based on income. And then if you qualify for food stamps and, I, you know, there's a, set of, there's a set of criteria that's on the USAC page that establishes and we have to go through and make sure that somebody can meet all those qualifications. And if they meet those qualifications, then we can open up the program to them. And obviously then we have to turn around and do all the right documentation with USAC. But I think it's gonna work out really well because uh, that's a really good way of determining uh, who, who does and who doesn't need access to the program. And I think we've got a pretty substantial number of people in our service area that this is gonna actually uh, make, a, make a pretty big difference for. And you know, I, I like the idea of being able to uh, being able to do something that's really going to help out, you know, the, the people in our service areas like that. And we're going to actually take a little bit of a hit. We're we're going to take a little bit less money ourselves, uh, even though the government's going to be paying for part of it. To you know, to kind of show that that's that's a big part of what we're trying to do is to do something for our communities. That's that's why we're that's why we're here in the first place is because. I lived out in rural area. I grew up on a ranch. We didn't have internet. And when I had the ability to try and get there, that was one of the first things that we did. So, you know, we want to be able to get this out to as many people as possible and make it as affordable as possible is, uh, you know, part of that. I think it's, it's worth reiterating also that your regular price is $40 a month, which already makes it a lot more affordable than what a lot of people in urban areas are paying. Uh, for um, you know that that level of service, um, so I, I appreciate that you keep your prices low to make sure people are able to afford that. Um, you know, regarding the Lifeline, I know one of the challenges that you faced is that um, you have this odd administrative challenge right now in that you um, would like to offer it to many of your areas. Um, it may not be feasible to offer it everywhere because of some uh, legacy systems that you have. And um, But um, but tell, tell us just a little bit about that challenge of the, um, the fact that you'd like to do more, but <laughs> you may be stuck between doing the minimum required or doing everything which is not feasible. Right. So all of our areas that we qualified for CAF we're not going to have any problem offering Lifeline there because as soon as we certify that we serve those areas, we're putting up new equipment and it's going to be able to do uh, 25-3 no problem. 
the minimum requirement for the Lifeline broadband right now, I believe it's like 15.2. And we have some areas on our network that are going to take some upgrading before we can get there. So what I'd like to do is every area that we can do the 15.2, we want to be able to offer the Lifeline. But there is some, we're, we're trying to work through some issues right now about whether uh, those areas are going to qualify uh, as for a reimbursement under the Lifeline program or whether it's only going to be locations that are specifically part of CAF. And then the other thing is we want to be able to, we're going to work as hard as we can to get our entire network upgraded to where, you know, we're hoping within 18 months we'll have everything up to where 25.3 will actually be our minimum speed period, even though it's the, the speed that we had to offer and we could offer lower speeds uh, according to CAF. Our goal is to get our entire network up to where 25.3 is the minimum. But we've been working on the program for that, and we think it's probably going to be 18 months. So uh, the challenge is, okay, we're going to offer it. We know that we're going to offer Lifeline in the areas of qualifying or CAF, but we have to get it sorted out. I really want to be able to offer it to everybody in our service area, but it's going to take a combination of a little bit of upgrading on our side and then making sure that uh, all of our uh, non-CAF subsidized areas will actually qualify for, for Lifeline. Matt, are you at all worried about SpaceX? They're going to be launching this service next year. I mean, we were talking about the satellite, which is the geostationary, which is much farther away and cannot offer a service anywhere close to what you're offering. But the SpaceX materials that they've released suggest that they will be able to offer service as comparable to what you're offering. I think we go through this with satellite on a regular basis, there's a cycle of, you know, it comes out and there's this promise that it's going to work really well. And then the first few people that are on it, it seems like it's going to work and this is going to be a big game changer. And then satellite generally tends to not scale very well. So I think that we're going to see that again with uh, SpaceX. You've got a extremely complex deployment system that involves kind of a mesh of satellites. And maintenance in space is very difficult <laughs> as opposed to terrestrial maintenance. And I, I really don't think that they're going to be able to uh, come up with something that's going to be uh, economically sustainable like uh, a fixed wireless terrestrial network would be. So I feel like we've got a very, uh, we, I feel like we've got a very capable and very economically sustainable business model that's going to survive just fine. Um, the, no matter what challenges come up, whether it's satellite, whether it's you know 5G, I, I think we're going to be able to to be just fine. There, you know what? There's enough de demand for broadband. It's not like somebody's going to come in and just crowd everybody else out. There's right. room. It's like use the right tool for the right job. Speaking of that, I was just uh, thinking in space, no one can hand you a wrench. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, my, my viewpoint on it, I think the, I think the whole SpaceX and uh, all of these systems, the real purpose behind these systems is to launch more rockets. So I think they're using broadband as an excuse to get investor money to cover the cost of building and launching more rockets, which gets their volume you know, the discounts and gets gets the, the critical mass put together so that they can make space flight cheaper. So from that point, you know, that I think probably makes sense if you're mm -hmm. a that, you know, builds rockets as a broadband network. I don't think it really makes a whole lot of sense 
I think that's the real motivation behind it is to launch more rockets. That's smart. I hadn't thought of that. I, frankly, I should have thought of that. I'm. That's a really, really good point, and uh, I appreciate that. I'm glad I asked you that question now. <laughs> So, Matt, I, I know that you have looked at the report John Sallet did from the Benton Institute for Internet and Society, and, and you had a reaction to it. And uh, I'm, I'm probably multiple reactions, but there's one that we have time for. And so um, I'm curious how you react to the report he was uh, on a few weeks ago. Looking at the report, I, I saw there was some good mention about uh, fixed wireless as being a good solution in some of these areas. But one thing that really stuck out to me was they were very big in the report on talking about symmetrical uh, bandwidth, that you need to have equal bandwidth up as you do down. And I think that's a that's a big error in the report. Uh, that really kind of says, well, if, you, if you're gonna have symmetrical, then you have to have fiber because wireless networks can be, uh, to really get the download speeds optimized, you have to take some of your capacity and devote it to, from upload and devote it to download. And based on what I've seen from how our, our users use the network, we see almost, I want to say somewhere between eight and 10 times more download traffic than upload traffic. So I think if you take real world, real user data and look at that, the need for symmetrical bandwidth is just not there, especially for residential. For business applications, uh, I can see that, that, is, that that's a, a more useful goal, but for residential, we just don't have the kind of we don't have the kind of usage profile that's going to take advantage of the upload, and that really puts a lot of the fixed wireless uh, and even the satellite solutions really kind of behind the eight ball because it's going to be a lot harder to meet the download requirements without taking a pretty good chunk of the capacity for upload and devoting it to download. So, other than that, I thought there were a lot of good points in his in his report. But that was one thing that I kind of took issue with that I think uh, could use some reexamination. Well, let me say, I, you and I over the years have um, come much closer to agreement than we used to be. I'm glad that we still disagree on on something significant <laughs> on this. I I would push back on you, and I'm I'm curious because I'll be curious as you're as you're saying you're, this technology is improving and you have more capacity. I think that the, a focus on equal is misplaced. I think we want robust in both directions. I mean, fundamentally, right now, my Comcast connection is is very asymmetrical. I mean, I'm on the order of like 300 down and 10 up. And I would pay them to go to 100 down and 100 up. You know, so I, I would effectively have less megabits at my disposal, but I would be able to do more things. And and I'm I, my household, I'm, I'm always going to be downloading more over the course of a month because of the nature of video. I, but I would like to see my upload transactions clear more rapidly when I have them, even if they're less numerous. Um, and so, I, you know, in some ways, I think we do see residents using upload less in part because uh, we're all used to doing that. The technology has rarely allowed us to do rapid uploads. And, and I think we're going to see more um, online storage and things like that, particularly with these, the fact that our software is not getting any more secure with ransomware attacks and things like that. I think people will want more upload. And so I'd be curious if in five years, if you're not, you know, doing much closer to symmetrical, even if you're not doing symmetrical at that point. A lot of it depends on uh, when you look at the way the equipment is configured, especially with wireless, you have to devote a certain amount of capacity to uh, upload as well as download. And I'm just looking at what users actually use. 
And in my mind, I, I don't disagree with your use case. I, I mean, it, it would be nice to be able to do that, but uh, unless you're on a fiber network, you can't just automatically say you're going to partition equally because whether it's uh, wireless and actually cable is they have the same set of situations. They have to devote mm -hmm. so many channels to download so many channels to upload. That's why you have a massively asymmetrical connection because Comcast has some very, very smart engineers. I've worked with them at Vitag and that's what they figured out is the optimal way to provide the service that, you know, probably 95% of their users want. So that's, that's why I have a little bit of the pushback. I don't disagree. Obviously we're going to try and do as much upload as we can, but uh, we do have solutions. Like if you wanted to buy a commercial connection from us, for example, we do offer commercial connections, but they're on a different system where we can optimize that type of setup. I'm curious about the technology. Um, I would have assumed that we'd be heading in a direction of software-defined radios in which you may be able to um, even change those things over the course of a day, but I don't know anything about how these radios work. Am, am I just living in, in la-la land? It's really complicated. <laughs> I thought I, it might be. <laughs> I, I wish I could give you a better explanation for it, but it comes down to it, it's basically airtime. So the airtime that's used to broadcast a bit can either be used for sending it to you or receiving it from you. And that's something that, you know, you can't, you can't run unless you've got some sort of a dual frequency type of a scenario where you're always broadcasting on one channel and always receiving on the other channel. That's the only way you can really do symmetrical over the air to make sense. And because we have a shortage of spectrum, everybody's trying to figure out how to get more capacity into smaller channels. Now, if we got to the point, we had a lot of radio systems that had uh, that had uh, dual channel type capability. That's one way to do that, or to you know take dedicated chunks of spectrum where you do a dedicated connection to a customer, and then you can adjust it according to what the customer wants for that particular application. But when we're talking about general purpose, like going out to residential customers, you kind of have to deal with what the what the ninety five percent of the customers want. And that's that's why you see setups that are, are done that way. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate the conversation. You bet. Matt Larson from Vistabeam. Thank you so much, Matt. You bet, Chris. Thank you. That was Christopher with Matt Larson from Vistabeam, a fixed wireless provider offering services in some of the most rural areas of the country. Learn more about the company at vistabeam.com. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, License to Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 384 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>